This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you're new, you can subscribe to get regular episodes every Thursday. Now, today we're looking forward to an archaeological dig, unearthing new knowledge about Roman occupation in the southeast of England. Richborough Roman Fort in Kent is perhaps one of the most symbolically important Roman sites in Britain, as it marks both the beginning and the end of Roman rule. And given that it witnessed such dramatic events, it seems only fitting that archaeologists will be revisiting its grassed-over amphitheatre for clues about Richborough's past. Joining us to discuss the excavation and the site's history are Paul Patterson, a senior properties historian at English Heritage. Hello, how are you doing today? And senior archaeologist for Historic England, Tony Wilmot. Hello there. Hello to you both. So let's start off with Paul. Where is Richborough and how has the geography of the area changed over nearly 2,000 years? Wow, what a big question. I'll try and be <laughs> as, as sort of succinct as I can. Well, the first part's easy. Richborough is in East Kent on the southeast tip of England, near the town of Sandwich, which is itself a, an early medieval town, but it's still inhabited today. Richborough, however, isn't. Today, it's about two kilometers from the sea, but in the first century AD, the period we're going to be talking about to start with, it was actually on the coast. So there's been huge changes on the coast since Roman times. In Roman times, though, it was on a small island at the southeastern end of a narrow sea channel, which is now vanished. It's called the Wantsome Channel. Uh, and its other end was on the north coast of Kent at a place called Reculver. So this channel was obviously linked to the North Sea, as it were, and it separated the area which we know today as Thanet from the mainland, making Thanet a large island in its own right in pre-Roman and Roman times. So you can see that's a massive change from the Roman landscape and seascape to the mm. present. So Thanet was this sort of like chunk on the top right-hand corner of uh, the area of Kent that we're talking about. And now it's obviously filled in. Yes, it, it, it has filled in over the time through natural silting of the river channels and the sea channel and also reclamation as well, deliberate reclamation mm. to reclaim land. So it's a very, very complex process that's taken several hundreds, well, in fact, thousands of years to play out. And in fact, it's part of the process that we see happening around our coast in general. You know, the coast is constantly changing. It's just in this particular place, it's quite obvious what has happened in that 2000 years. So hopefully everyone now is getting the idea that this is a completely different geography at the time. There's lots of waterways that you can travel around by boat if you're a Roman settling in Britain. So tell us more about how useful this ancient geography was to the Romans who obviously did settle and stayed for a while. Well, Richborough, as I said, was at the southeastern end of this channel called the Wonsum. And in that position, there was a sheltered area of sea, which was ideal as a ship anchorage. And actually, if you wanted to, you could build a port there to bring in supplies and for trade. While it also had a fairly gentle shoreline, a beach, if you will, which was ideal for landing, whether that be in a military situation or just for ships coming and going. 
and perhaps for some of the shallow drafted ships that were used by the Romans and in Roman times, you could beat ships as well. So the fact that Richborough was in that position made it an attractive place to settle anywhere. But it was also on a tiny island of its own, linked to the mainland by what appears to have been an artificially constructed causeway. So the island itself offered security from a defensive perspective from any installation that you cite there. But crucially, it was really ideally situated for ships crossing the Channel and the Southern North Sea from Gaul, that is modern France and Belgium. And the Wonsum itself provided a sheltered passage from that position along the waterway into the Medway and Thames estuaries and eventually up to London. Uh, instead of having to sail around the Isle of Thanet. So geographically, it had features that were ideal for the shortest, quickest, and in good conditions, the safest imperial communications linking Britain with the rest of the Roman Empire. Mm. So it's in this really superb strategic position uh, in terms of imperial communications. So it's a natural choice as well as being a, a naturally great position, isn't it? That's it in a nutshell, yeah. So when the Romans first arrived in AD 43, I'm guessing Richborough was their key landing ground for sort of offloading things. Well, first of all, it's probably important to recognise that there had been earlier Roman interventions. And this is important because it just didn't happen overnight like that. I mean, Julius Caesar had mounted two substantial expeditions to Britain almost 100 years before, so in 55 BC and 54 BC. And the emperor, known to us as Caligula, or Gaius, planned another one in AD 40, so just a few years before the actual invasion was mounted by Claudius. This was actually in AD 40 that Caligula was making his plans. So the Romans had entertained designs on Britain long before 43 AD, and indeed had forged various alliances with some of the tribes that made up you know, the population of southeastern and southern Britain at that time. Some of them were pro-Rome, some against. Anyway, leaving the politics aside of how it came (laughs) about, (laughs) which is quite complicated, Richborough probably was the main landing ground in AD 43. But the trouble is, the historical sources that we have available, i.e. the Roman writers, don't provide a great amount of detail. One particular author called Cassius Dio, writing in the late third or early fourth century, so a long time afterwards, records only that the Roman army sailed in three divisions, so three groups. They could have landed separately or actually in the same place. If you think about the D-Day landings in 1944, there were various phases of forces that landed in the same place. So the fact that there's three divisions doesn't necessarily mean they landed in different places. A near contemporary Roman writer called Suetonius, who was writing towards the end of the first century, says absolutely nothing about the landing place. So we are in many ways reliant upon other things that these Roman authors say, and also on archaeology. It's fair to say that the case has been made for other landings in the Solent, in the Southampton area. But in my mind, I don't know what Tony thinks, but in my mind, the case for Richborough is so compelling as perhaps the major landing place, because first of all, it has archaeological remains of the right period. 
It also has archaeological remains, which almost certainly commemorate the invasion. And also the subsequent fame of Richborough among Roman writers as the principal entry point to Britain. So its Roman name, Rutupii, is in some cases used by Roman authors into the fourth century as being synonymous with Britain itself. So they're equating Rutupii with Britannia. I think there's yeah. another element there as well, Paul, which is the fact that from, say, Boulogne, which we, again, assume to be the jumping-off point, to Richborough is the shortest crossing point, and a fleet crossing there would be going with the prevailing winds up channel. Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, short route so with the prevailing winds, that, that really is a bit of a clincher to me, in addition to the other factors that you mentioned just then. That's good stuff. And, it, and it's also, if you delve a little bit more into history, it is used and stated to be used in larger, sorry, in large later military landings. Mm. So, for instance, in the 360s, when a Roman general called Lupicinus and then another, an emperor called Theodosius, actually landed at Richborough. So, you know, there's something of a continuity there as it being mm. a principal place of, of entry. It sounds like compelling evidence to me, and, and obviously that precedent was established, as you say, leading to later landings. You've mentioned that there isn't much information about how the landings took place. Do we know how many soldiers landed? <laughs> well, w we can make a pretty good intelligent estimation, I think is the truth. From, you know, the sum total of both archaeology, the survival of Roman writers and Roman inscriptions, and the picture that's been built up over the years by, you know, really intensive archaeology, we think there was something in the order of between 30 and 40,000 soldiers, probably towards the latter, the higher end uh, of that estimation. So we know definitely of one Roman legion involved in these early years, the second Augustan legion, and there were more recorded slightly later in this conquest period in the next 20 to 30 years. So we think there were four legions these are the citizen soldiers, the heavy shock troops, the infantry of the Roman army. So that four legions would total something like 20,000 soldiers. And then there would be the auxilia. These are the non-citizen support troops, soldiers who had been raised in the provinces from previously conquered peoples. And they fulfilled a wide variety of really important tactical combat roles. So there were probably as many auxilia as there were legionaries. So the best estimate is about 40,000, which is a very, very big army for the ancient world. And spread out over, do we know how many years after AD 43? What, in terms of the conquest? Yes. Well, the, the, it's a moot point, really, but you know there is trouble in Britain <laughs> into the 80s. And in fact, there's a Roman general called Julius Agricola, who is taken, certainly in Roman sources, to be the person who, in inverted commas, completes the conquest of Britain in the mid-AD 80s. So you can see there's a period of 40 years where there is serious fighting, but it's in stages and in bits. There's not continuous fighting, and there's, there are several phases of advance and consolidation uh, mm -hmm. when various parts of Britain and Wales uh, and southern Scotland are brought under Roman control. But this early phase, if that's what we're really talking about, it lasts about four years, and it's generally agreed that by AD 47, there is an area of control that stretches from the Bristol Channel 
in the southwest in a line going diagonally upwards through the country to end on the River Humber in what used to be Yorkshire, which is now its own area. So there's quite a substantial area that is taken in the, under initial control in the first four years. Tony, you were going to say? No, I mean, that, that sort of earliest um, phase is more or less bounded by the line of the road known as the Fossway, yeah. which runs along that, uh, along that diagonal. Even after the conquest of, or the governorship of Agricola in the 80s, we still have further re- records of uh, trouble in Britain. Indeed, indeed in, under the Emperor Hadrian, there's a, a war recorded in Britain, which might have been one of the causes for building Hadrian's Wall. So it's always troublesome and always has a big garrison. Yes, <laughs> and the armies, yeah. the Roman army's always there in the middle of it all. But um, going back to the thing that you earlier said, Paul, this early phase, this four-year phase, how did the Roman army solidify its position in the Richborough vicinity? According to our Roman historians, and remember these accounts are not very detailed, resistance was not met on landing. So the fighting troops of the Roman army organized and marched or rode inland to find the enemy. Within a short time, fighting occurred in a pivotal two-day battle at the crossing of the River Medway. And that's believed to have been a few miles west of Rochester in Kent, actually only a mile and a half from where I am now sitting. Right. Uh, (laughs) Then moved across the Thames into Essex, making for the important tribal center at Colchester. And by 44, and possibly also in 43, soldiers were also fighting their way across the West Country. So this is happening within a few weeks and a few months. Now, imagine an army of 40,000 soldiers with all its equipment and supplies and its requirements in food and drink. To maintain such a force, supplies would have to be brought in by sea, stockpiled, and guarded, then transported along secure routes that the army had established by fighting inland, at least until a wide area had been secured and some supplies could be gathered in the conquered territory. So this is a huge logistical exercise, never mind the fighting. It's an amazing thing to undertake for an army in the ancient world. At Richborough then, what happened there? Well, archaeological excavations conducted between 1922 and 1938 uncovered remains which relate to this very period. And so those remains are best seen as a defensible position forming a temporary supply base. For how long is pretty uncertain, given that a large part of southern England, that area we've just defined, was under effective Roman control by AD 47. So how long did the supply base last? We're not sure. However, The remains at Richborough comprise one side of a pretty big fortification defined by two deep V-shaped military defensive ditches set close together and running parallel for several hundred metres across this island of Richborough. And then at some point, turning to the east to return to the shore. So it's defining a big area on the edge of the shore on this island for some reason. Now, you know, we're pretty sure that this must have been a defended supply base of some kind. Maybe it was a place where they also beached the ships and could leave them in safety, but they would have also been stockpiling material on the site in in purpose-made buildings. 
We haven't found any of the very earliest of buildings, but we have finds of coins and pottery and several ovens, which were probably for making bread, which are datable to this early Claudian period. But within a short time, a few years, it's impossible to say how long because we can't date these things so precisely in general terms. How long this fortification lasted is unsure, but what happened within a short time is that the fortification itself was replaced by a grid of graveled roads serving military-style granaries, storehouses, and shops. So it's a military enterprise. It's characteristic. We've seen them you know, throughout the province and elsewhere, the same kind of buildings, and they are characteristically military. And these buildings we know subsequently developed or formed the, the, the very early basis for a town-like civilian settlement that emerged at Richborough. But the exact chronology and how that process played out, we don't fully understand. But it looks like it's still there up till about AD 70 at least. So it's probably fulfilling some kind of military function while evolving into something that's more civilian in character within a few years of AD 70. This leads me on to my next question, which is around AD, 70, AD 85, we know that a giant arch was built. So that, I presume, ties in with this more civilian official solidification of Richborough being a place to land and arrive. So why was this giant arch built? Well, it's, it's quite a quandary, this. It's a really intriguing, interesting, enigmatic story. And it could relate to both military and civilian issues, because in, in, in many ways they're intertwined anywhere. So this structure is what we would commonly call a triumphal arch. They're probably familiar to most people in Roman terms. A triumphal arch or a monumental arch. And they were built to honour emperors who had done something particularly noteworthy, usually, of course, a conquest or a great victory, which brought great prestige and riches to Rome. So a chunk of the settlement at Richborough was redeveloped sometime in the period between AD 70, 75 and AD 100. That is, an area was completely cleared of its previous buildings. And actually, the streets were realigned completely in this area. Ah. Uh, and this huge mon monumental arch erected. So to draw eyes to the arch, I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, it, the, the street plan is aligned on the arch mm. uh, and the arch is aligned on Watling Street which is the street that leads from Richborough actually from the arch you could see all the way to London and then up into the Midlands as far as Roxeter and linked to places like the legionary base at Chester so it is a huge undertaking it was immense it's about 26 meters high uh, and occupied a ground area of about 30 metres by 15 metres with actually a huge be, uh, foundation. Sorry, it would actually be probably the largest monumental arch in the entire Roman Empire. Compared with the Brandenburg Gate or the Arc de Triomphe, how, what sort of... They are they are tiddlers by comparison. <laughs> yes, really? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. When you think that this whole thing was clad in marble, brought from Carrera in Italy probably worked by imperial craftsmen imported for the purpose. It would have been adorned with a monumental inscription dedicated to the emperor who had built it and whose exploits were thereby proclaimed. And it probably would have been, well, it certainly would have been peopled by bronze figures, 
possibly even crowned by a figure of the emperor. This can only have been an imperial building project. So when we say that, what could possibly have been the reason for such an enterprise? If our dating is accurate, and we do have to rely upon some early excavations that took place in the 1920s and 30s. So if it was built sometime in the period 75 to 100 AD, then it has been suggested it might have been ordered by an emperor called Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96. He was the son of Vespasian, who was another emperor and the brother of Titus, another emperor who had preceded him. And in fact, Vespasian had fought during the conquest in Britain in the 40s. So this is you know, a dynasty with, with history. And what it might have done is mark what was projected by them as the completion of the Roman conquest of Britain in inverted commas, uh-huh. following these campaigns in Northern England and Scotland by the governor we mentioned earlier, Julius Agricola. They took place between 77 and 85. So it's a good candidate. It would have been visible for miles out to sea, probably maybe even on the other side. I'm not sure. It's at the start of this great Roman road. So some modern historians have suggested that this was indeed the ceremonial entrance to the Roman province of Britain. Makes sense to me, I must admit, just trying to picture it. But Tony's described modern comparisons being tiddlers. What sort of monumental size are we talking about this monument? I mean, uh, how wide would it have been, do you think? It's about 30 metres wide, about 15 metres, well, 30 by 15. So it's what they call a quadrifons arch. So it has four arches, yeah? So it has two axes, a long axis and a short axis. And these arches lead into passageways which intersect under vaulted ceilings, barrel vaulted ceilings. So the overall area occupied by that structure was 30 meters by 15 meters. So the long axis is 30 and the short axis is 15. And then it rises to a height of 26 meters. And probably, you know, with a statue on top, you can add another good few meters on top of that. So it's, it's just massive. It's, you know, immense. Yeah. So you, okay. know, you, you think of a structure in, in a normal place, 26 meters tall. That's, you know. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it doesn't have rooms in it. It's just a, it's just a monument. So, simply there to be impressive yeah, uh, and, and for no other reason. It is an absolutely sensational thing and it would certainly be visible from at least halfway across the channel. Yeah. In fact, if there, uh, there's lighthouses, say, at Boulogne, you might be able to, with this arch, you might just be able to cross the channel keeping land or monument in sight the whole way across. Well, I'm very impressed by the image in my head, I must admit, and by the story, but People listening today are going to go, all right, where is it? (laughs) Does it survive? Well, like many Roman remains in Britain, you know, it has been reduced. But unusually, in this case, it was reduced in Roman times. So it was very largely destroyed in the late 3rd century AD because its materials were recycled, mainly in building a large fort, the walls of which we can still see today. So presumably by this time, political circumstances meant that it was no longer so revered and you know maybe the political circumstances demanded that something else take its place in this case a fort but what you can see is a huge elevated cross-shaped foundation 
Okay. And what this represents is the paved passageways through the arch. So although the arch has gone, the raised passageways that went underneath these barrel vaults forming the arches are still surviving. And coincidentally, they just, they're in a cross-shaped form because they mm -hmm. represent the two axes going through the former arch. So you can still see that, but it's, it's a bit of a stretch for people to understand you know, what that represents. So obviously we do try to explain that. Uh, and in a, our forthcoming project, we'll be doing more to do that and, and to reconstruct exactly what it looked like. Right. That, that cross really confused the um, old antiquaries and archaeologists in the past who thought, A, of course, it must be something Christian and religious, but B, that X marked the spot. So they, there was a lot of digging underneath it in ah. the past. And all they found was this immense clay and flint foundation, absolutely huge foundation in the sandy soil to support the weight of this massive monument. So you can basically stand in the same spot where this uh, arch would have been, or these yes, four arches would have been. And you can sort of try and imagine above your head where it would have been, etc. Yes, you can. And and you know, we, we are doing a project at Richborough as we speak, and we'll do a lot to help people enhance their imagination, if you like. So obviously this arch or this four arched monument becomes a fort, a Roman fort at Richborough. And we know that Richborough was a fort and a port, but was it used as a military base after people sat settled there? This is a complex answer as well, but really no, not, not for a long while anyway, but soldiers were ubiquitous in the Roman world. So we can't rule out that there was some kind of small Roman garrison there. There may even have been you know, a naval presence, because we know for a fact that there was a Roman fleet called the Classis Britannica, the British fleet, that operated in the Channel, certainly in the first two and a half centuries of the Roman period in Britain. So it's conceivable that, that there was a military compound of some kind at Richborough, but we haven't identified it. Mm. However, in general terms, from about AD 70 through the second century and through the first half of the third century AD, there's no identifiable Roman military presence. And so Richborough grows into a fairly large civilian settlement covering something like 21 hectares. So that's the equivalent of about 30 large football pitches. Now, that might not sound large to us, but in Roman terms, of course, it is large. This is, in reality, a town, even though we don't understand exactly what its status was in Roman times. It's a pretty substantial Roman settlement with buildings to match. But what we do know is that about AD 250, approximately, a new fortification was built, and it was actually built around the arch. So it was probably defined by a rampart, a defensible rampart, on which soldiers would have stood to defend it. And outside that rampart, there were three of these defensive ditches, again, so it's not a huge fort. It's actually probably more better described as a fortlet, a small fort. But it didn't last very long. But what it tells us is that there is some military imperative which is starting to alter the character of the settlement at Richborough. So by about the mid-270s, so only 20-odd years later, that fort is demolished and a new, much larger and more ambitious fort is built, whose stone walls survive in very large part today, you know, in excess of six meters high in places. Really incredibly impressive defensive walls. 
and these are the walls for which the arch was demolished and its materials reused in constructing the fort. There are a couple of places, in fact, where you can see pieces of Italian marble moulding sticking out of the concrete of the fort walls. <laughs> wow. Basically, the, yeah. basically, that Italian marble would have been great for uh, burning down to create lime to make the concrete that the, uh, the walls are built out of. I see. Now, the second iteration of the fort, was that defending against possible raiders from the continent? So Saxon raiders, etc.? Uh, so we, we've done a podcast about this, haven't we, in the past? We have, but for we people have. who haven't heard so, that one. <laughs> there, there's a plug. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we've done a podcast on the Saxon shore. Well, the fort that was built in the 270s did actually remain until the, the very end of the Roman period in Britain, as far as we understand, i.e. the early 5th century AD. One of the latest, in fact, from our knowledge from excavations to survive. So this is exactly the period when the main Roman military forces in Britain were completely withdrawn from Britain to help defend other Roman provinces, you know, in more central Europe. But let's just put it this way. The third century, i.e. when the fort is built, is a very turbulent period in Roman history. There is a lot of a civil war happening uh, and a rapid succession of emperors come and go. For a time, Britain was actually part of a breakaway empire called the Gallic Empire. So 14 years between 260 and 274 when Britain, Gaul, and Germany were ruled by emperors separated from the rest of the Roman Empire. And although reunited in 274, there was a second British breakaway from the empire under rulers called Carausius and Electus for 10 years between AD 286 and 296. Hmm. So this is part of the background, and there's even bigger things happening in the main part of the Roman Empire in Central Europe. Hmm. So this period sees the return of fortifications to the coast of Britain in the south and the east, which it hadn't seen very largely since the initial conquest. So this must have been in part a military and naval response to the control of resources and supplies to and from the province across the Channel and the Southern North Sea, but also critically to this threat of piracy and coastal raiding. So let's deal with Saxon shore in a nutshell as well. By the early 5th century AD, a series of these forts, like Richborough, were under the command of an officer called the Count of the Saxon shore, a Roman high military officer. And the forts, because of that, have become known as the Saxon shore forts, capitalizing on this theory that they were actually built to counter the threat of Saxon and Frankish raiders. Actually, in truth though, Whatever the particular reason for building Richborough Fort was, these Saxon shore forts, in inverted commas, appeared in various historical phases from about 220 AD right up to AD 300, so over a period of 80 or more years, and probably for various reasons and combinations of reasons and ever-changing reasons, if you take my drift, mm. though perhaps finally united sometime in the 4th century as a single command specifically to counter this threat of Saxon and Frankish raiders. But their appearance and creation and development is probably more complex than that. Yes, It's a really complex story and actually um, really fascinating about how the Roman Empire was almost at war with itself within its conquering of these foreign lands. And there was... I can understand then why this fort was then added to, to deal with maybe insider threats as well as 
outside threats from the native peoples. Or, that, that's or absolutely right. And, and it's actually perhaps naive to think that a fort fulfills just one purpose for one time and it's built just for that particular purpose at that time you know it evolved and their use and actually internal arrangements would have changed rapidly over time too so it is complex military priorities constantly changing throughout the roman period we did say in the introduction though that uh, richborough is perhaps one of the most symbolically important roman sites in britain because it lasted almost to the end of roman rule what are the key things that make it so symbolic in part, we've already answered the question, but again, to try and summarize it, it was there at the beginning. So it's there at the conquest period, right at the very beginning. And it's there at the end, not almost at the end, at the very end of the Roman period. So that makes it actually quite unique and quite symbolic to us as students of the past. So it's there at the conquest and it's there at the retreat, you might say. But the things that make it symbolic perhaps in Roman times, are clearly the monumental arch. For however long it remained that symbol, it's a pretty remarkable, almost unique thing in Britain. However, the monumental arch and probably the amphitheatre are really symbolic and powerful symbols of Richborough's importance, which indeed is underlined by its strong identity to Roman authors in Roman times, not just since. Let's talk about this amphitheatre then, because um, an amphitheatre, as well as a series of Roman baths, are key ingredients to a Roman settlement. Why was Richborough's amphitheatre so important, Tony? Well, I think it's, it's part of the whole idea of the, uh, of the incoming Roman presence and the slow development of the port. We don't know as yet the dates of the amphitheatre, but we've got geophysical survey of the sort of civilian town that Paul was talking about just then. We've got the geophysical survey showing 21 hectares of development, and the amphitheatre sits right on the edge of it, probably deliberately on the edge of it, because amphitheatres tend to be sited on the edges of settlements. They're very edgy places, and the Romans appreciated they were edgy places. They sit on the junction between civilization and barbarism and between life and death and so many other edgy concepts. So I think the amphitheater is probably sitting on the edge or on an edge of the development of the port town as it develops. But of course, within the province, there are no amphitheaters. This form of entertainment is unknown. So it tends to be incoming communities that set up amphitheatres. So, of course, the Roman legions, as Paul was saying, the citizen soldiers who were setting up their major fortresses would want to have the sort of entertainment that they were used to sort of on tap next to their fortresses. So this is a this is an incoming, completely alien army, if you like. They're bringing completely alien pastimes in with them. And the big the legionary amphitheatres at Chester and at Caerleon are the really the two most impressive amphitheatres in Britain. London gets one, but of course London again is a is a completely new Roman settlement. So again, it's a settlement of incomers. And you can see Richborough's port as being yet again a settlement of incomers who are there to trade, to exploit the new province. And again, they are probably wishing to have the same kind of entertainment facilities as they were used to where they came from. So I think it's all about the incoming communities creating, if you like, the familiar in the the places in which they're settling. What kind of size amphitheatre are we talking here at Richborough? 
Well, we've only we've got the dimensions only of the arena, really. We don't know the dimensions of the structure as a whole, but the arena is about sixty by fifty meters, which is actually similar to the ones I just mentioned, similar to London, similar to the Legionary Amphitheatre at Chester and at Caerleon. So, you know, it's quite substantial in size. Would it have been um, similar to things that we can see as tourists in modern-day Italy today, or would it be more an earthwork sort of scenario? Well, we don't. I'll tell you in December, um, <laughs> basically. When you finish um, the dig. <laughs> when we finish the dig. Uh, we know very little about it. We've got the geophysical survey of it, and certainly we have two major entrances on the long axis, on the long axis, and they seem to be ramps leading into the arena, which would be standard. But the geophysics show us two really great concentrations of what is probably stonework, collapsed stonework, at the ends of the short axis. And this would be these are probably complex entrances, which we can parallel in Britain at, again, Chester and Carleon. But we don't even know whether the building had an external wall. Most of the amphitheaters of Britain, the amphitheaters that later developed in the sort of civilian towns, of Britain are simply earthworks. That is one of the big questions that we want to answer about Richborough. As an entertainment venue, what kind of things would uh, locals and the troops be able to see? Well, exactly what you'd imagine. Amphitheatres are built for one thing and one thing only, and that is to show the kind of entertainments that we associate with them. So wild beast hunts of different kinds, executions done in um, sometimes elaborate and imaginative ways, and of course, gladiatorial combat. Okay, so we've sort of covered the the rough idea. We we don't know whether it's an earthwork, we don't know whether it's a stonework, but it was certainly quite big, fifty by sixty meters. Yeah, we do know we do know it's stonework. We, um, oh, okay. There has been a previous piece of work in in eighteen forty six. It's the only time it's ever been actually touched by the spade, as it were, and that was certainly defined the wall of the arena as opposed to the outer wall of the building, the wall around the arena, which is certainly stone. And there are engravings made at the time of other stone walls, which appear to be within these uh, big entrances on the, on the short axes. So we do know it's stonewalled, at least internally, the entrances and the, and the arena are stonewalled. And regarding this dig in 1846 that you just mentioned, would that be the last reliable dig evidence that you're able to go on? I mean, are you the next set of diggers to come in after that? Yep, 1846 is the only time it's ever been touched. So this is the second dig only in its history then? That's right, yeah. So it is really quite exciting. Yeah, I was going to say. So um, you you could find anything then, really? Yeah, I hope so. The engravings that I mentioned earlier on are, um, well, they show walls that are sort of 12 quarters high so you're looking at 1.82 meters if they're still there of course because that's one of the questions it's not beyond mid-19th century people to see the chance that an excavation of some nice stone walls has given to actually take the stone away and reuse it so one of the questions is whether we still have the same survival as we had in 1846 the part of the amphitheatre that you're tackling this time, will it be the same as the previous dig or are you going into a new area? No, we're going from the, well, I say the known to the unknown, from the from the relatively known to the unknown. So we are going for the entrance, the short axis entrance that seems to have been just tested a little bit by our predecessors in 1846. Okay, so yeah, basically okay. we're from the known to the unknown, but we don't know much about the known. How big will be the trench that you'd end up 
digging or will you do a series of trenches? Now we're going one big one, which is going to be 25 metres square. If the archaeology is really deep, if we do have these high standing walls, that'll give us the opportunity to step the excavation in for safety purposes. And what are you bringing with you in terms of tools? Are you getting a digger and this sort of thing that people might be familiar with? Yes, the top, we'll be taking the top off using a mechanical excavator. After that, whatever tools are appropriate from the mechanical excavator itself, right there, down, down to uh, paintbrushes. But in terms of recording, we're using a very sophisticated digital system. So visitors will be able to see us using ruggedized laptop computers on site. They'll be the principal instrument by which we do recording. They are linked to our site compound with a a Wi-Fi system so that site records will be transmitted straight to the central sort of archive on the main computer from the people working on site. That has the advantage, of course, that we can immediately interrogate the data that we're taking off site. We don't have to wait until weeks or months ahead Mm. when we've processed the data. The data will be being processed on site. So if a question comes up on the site or a question comes out of what we're seeing on the central computer, we will then be able to go out and, uh, and test for answers. Will you have um, tents and um, temporary buildings for all this equipment? Yep, we've got a compound of, uh, I think, think six or eight porter cabins. We'll have a fines processing area, or porter cabin will have an environmental processing one, the office, of course, the computer setup, and we also need uh, mess rooms, of course. We've got perhaps slightly more cabins than we normally would, because of sensible distancing, because of COVID, of course. Yes. So a a real expedition then. Uh, How long will you be on site? We'll be there for nine weeks or nearly 10 weeks, actually, 15th of September to the 19th of November. So knowing how you're going to be working and how you're going to be staying and the area that you're going to be excavating, what are the real questions that you'll be asking yourselves on a daily basis as you pick into this amphitheatre? Gosh. Well, we've been looking for the uh, date, obviously, the um, state of preservation. And if the state of preservation is like what was hinted at in 1846, we'll also be actually asking questions about the architecture of the building. We're not not just looking at foundations, but if we're looking at this sort of standing wall, we're looking at potentially looking at modes of access into the amphitheatre through this, this entrance that we're excavating. So date, structure, architecture, possibly decoration of the building, any evidence for how it was used even. I'm not expecting lion bones to turn up in the amphitheatre, in the arena, but certainly any evidence for what it was used for, how long it was used for, how often it was used, which is a big question as well. Certainly some of the amphitheatres that develop in the um, sort of tribal capitals within Britain were not used very much. You get the impression perhaps that the Brits didn't quite get it, mm. didn't quite get this form of entertainment. After all, and, and many of them, many of the ones in the tribal capitals, there's even suggestions that they were standing on terraces rather than sitting in these buildings. And of course, um, you think about the classic amphitheatre entertainment, which would include wild beast hunts in the morning, executions at lunchtime, and then gladiators in the afternoon. That's That's a full day outside, which is perhaps not great in our climate. There's also this question around settlements around the amphitheatre, isn't there? You'd like to know a bit more about the buildings around the amphitheatre. Yeah, it's more the relationship between the town 
and the amphitheater building. And that is also a question about how fast the port town, the civilian port town, develops after the initial military phase. I said earlier on that the amphitheater was built on an edge of the town. So it may have been built earlier on and the town later develops and spreads around it. Certainly there's evidence in the geophysics that there are buildings around close to the amphitheater. So we'll be looking at the relationship of the amphitheater with these buildings. Is the amphitheater later than this, some of these buildings? Are these buildings, as I said, developing as the town grows around the amphitheater, which was originally placed on the edge of the settlement? Again, it's about sequence, it's about dating, and the wider questions of the history of the development of the settlement. Of course, yes. Is it worth saying anything about the burial? Yeah, there is. Um, there was a burial actually found within the area of the amphitheater, actually over one of the entrances, not the entrance that we're digging in 1846. So maybe the site is used as a cemetery, but we don't know when. We don't have a date for this burial. We don't have any accompanying objects, as far as we're aware, non-reported in 1846. And uh, obviously, we don't have the bones left, so we can't do any scientific work on them. They don't exist anymore. So there is this question of how the amphitheater site was used in later periods. So lots of lots of questions then, really. And I know visitors and uh, listeners will be keen to ask some questions and get some answers from archaeologists on site between mid-September and November. So how can visitors and listeners see your excavations? So Tony's professional team will be aided by a few English Heritage volunteers. And together we'll be having tours of the excavations we think maybe from the 27th of september onwards to give the dig a chance to get underway these may be once or twice daily and they'll be advertised and will need to be booked on the english heritage website so tony did some of these tours on his previous job that he's just come off at bird oswald on hadrian's wall and they're very successful so we're hoping to repeat that exercise so that the public is kept really up to date on a daily basis as to what's coming up and how the excavation is developing. Is there going to be a better access for people getting to this amphitheatre dig site? Because obviously we're talking about uh, autumnal weather and potentially muddy areas. So, so how are people getting onto the site? Yeah, well, it's in the country and boots will be, <laughs> will be recommended. It just goes with the territory. Although we uh, are actually laying um, some track mat down because we've got to get vehicles up to site from the main site at Richborough up to the amphitheatre. So we are laying down track mat so we can get vehicles up there. Will there be access as well for disabled visitors, bearing in mind these track mats being laid? It's probably not going to be possible because the gradients involved are too great and mm. obviously we can't alter the landscape by any means. So, you, you know, you're going from a relatively low elevation to quite a high elevation. The amphitheatre sits on a high point of the island, so it's very difficult to get any form of access for those of limited mobility. So I think the short answer to that is no. If we could, we would. But what we are doing is, because we own the amphitheatre site, and there's never been a public path to the site. So as well as doing temporary access to enable people to view the excavations, we've negotiated and agreed a permanent path to the site with our tenant farmer. So for the first time, probably from early 2022, our visitors to the Roman fort at Richborough, which is where they currently go, will also be able to make their way along a permanent path 
to view the amphitheater site and we'll be providing some low key interpretation panels about the amphitheater and the results of the excavations going forward. So finally, when can we talk to you again about what you will have discovered? <laughs> well, we'll be coming off site, I say, on the 19th of uh, November. I'm going to take a bit of a break in December, I think. So uh, <laughs> I think we're probably talking the new year. I mean, in all seriousness, obviously, there has to be work on the records, work to, although we're going to get an awful lot of the interpretation and so forth done on site through this uh, this computer system. We'll need to think about what we've come up with and, and, and think about the story that we've developed. And Paul, I suppose this is just one of those really exciting things. I mean, I love the idea of uh, breaking new ground, and this is literally it, isn't it? Oh, it's, this is amazing. I, I was talking to a group of volunteers recently. These people are going to be doing the tours, and one of them whispered to another one, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yep, and actually, right. Tony, Tony said that a little bit earlier in the interview. Mm. And it is, it's, it's an amazing opportunity, not only to examine this emotive type of Roman site and amphitheater, but also to have another look at the story of Richborough. We've been starved of new information for quite some time, really, <laughs> and we need to move the story on. I mean, Tony's been working on this site on and off for over 20 years, so he's got a real vested interest, as do I, in trying to move the story on. And, and we hope that this excavation will provide us with some new data and some exciting stories to tell about how Richborough developed in the Roman period. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, as the days grow shorter and cooler, we're exploring the history of autumn traditions. It fulfills an essential human need to cheer ourselves up on facing the dark and the cold. And that's not going to change as long as we live in a hemisphere like ours. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>